Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, welcome to the Stuka Scene podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. This week, we're going to be looking back on Judd Trump's foray into Nine Ball Pool, who's at the US Open last week, with, of course, Phil Yates, who's commentating for Sky Sports. Phil is back in Blighty and joins me this week. Uh, we'll also get to your emails later on as well. But first of all, Phil, some sad news, of course, this week. Alan Chamberlain passed away at the age of 78. He was a very well-regarded, well-respected referee. Passed his first referee's exam in 1965. He retired in 2014. So that's nearly 50 years of good service to the game. We knew Alan well. He was, he was a good guy, wasn't he? Well, he was a really good guy. He hasn't been on the circuit, as you say, for quite some time. We already missed him. But the news yesterday was very sad indeed. Two things I'll say. I'll split up the, the relationship I had with Alan into personal and professional. I always got on really, really well with him. He served the game phenomenally well. He was always good company, always sensible, always good fun. As regards to being a referee, I think he was one of the best ever. I really do. He was strong. He was powerful. He wasn't. Uh, frightened to make a what he might perceive to be an unpopular decision. And, of course, he was involved in many of the game's biggest moments. You know, one person today who will be very sad is Ken Doherty because Alan refereed Ken Doherty's World Championship final victory over Stephen Hendry. So he shared the day, if you like, with, with Ken, the two days. And he also, I think, officiated in seven Masters finals. He was a fixture down there at what was then Wembley Conference Centre. And I was really sad to hear of his passing. Yeah, the sort of era where you associate Alan, I guess it was the John Street, John Williams, Len Ganley era. What links all of them? They were all very, very tough. You know, you knew if they refereed a match, they had the authority. Uh, you know, that there may be the odd call you didn't agree with, but they had the authority. There was no concern about, you know, the match wouldn't be done properly. And uh, I remember, as you know, I started working for WPBSA and the first tournament I went to, I, I had to have a meeting with Alan and John Williams because they ran the UK tour, which in effect the challenge tour at the time. And, you know, these are people I'd seen on TV. I've kind of, you know, to me, they were famous. Um, I was coming in, a young guy, you know, new to the sport. They could not have been nicer to me. They could not have been nicer. And I think that's the thing with the reps, isn't it? And it, it's true, continues to this day. You know, they're all good, good people because they're not in it for the glory. They're certainly not, not in it for the money because there's not a lot of that. They're in it because they love the sport and they want to be involved. And, you know, they do a fantastic job. They do. And, of course, there's another sport as well that will be mourning uh, Alan's passing today because he did so much great work in billiards as well. Mm. It's what you say about that first meeting with him. And I was the same when I came into the game. He was very welcoming to me. But he did a lot of good work with billiards. And, you know, the best thing I can say about Alan Chamberlain is this. I've had a, a frame of reference because I've been involved in the game now for... 33 years professionally. So I've seen lots of generations of players and I've seen lots of generations of referees. And the best I could say about Alan is this. The standard of refereeing today is, I think, collectively the best it's ever been. Alan could have slipped into that group seamlessly. 
he was top notch and for me he'll be sorely missed yeah and I'm sure everyone in the sport agrees with that and because saying that our condolences to, to Alan's family as I say we've just had the US Open uh, well no better person to speak to than you I mean Judge Trump we're all wondering how he's going to get on and I think it, it kind of went Phil as we thought it would I think people thought yeah he could win a few games I know the bookies had him favourite, which I couldn't work out because he'd never played the sport before. Probably could win a few games, but then he runs into a top player, Jason Shaw, and you know he's going to be found out. I know he went into the loser side, but he didn't get through that. But were you? Did that sort of pan out as you expected it to? He sort of venture there. Exactly, exactly how I expected it to. Because let's not beat about the bush. Uh, some of these opponents early on weren't any good at all, were they? I mean, there were some people in that tournament. I think it was a $750 entry fee. Basically, they were there because they were just enthusiastic amateurs who wanted to be involved in the biggest event in the world. And you could fully understand that. A little bit like the old Ponting scenario, I suppose, where you've got, you know, league players coming up against world-class players. Um, that's how it used to be up at Prestatin. And that's how it was at the US Open. I mean, some of the guys who played, especially the guy who played Earl Strickland on TV, you know, he just wasn't a good player. Let's not uh, try and say he was. And Judd's first two opponents didn't play well. One of them was absolutely consumed with nerves, the Indian lad Patel. (laughs) And then the third guy he played was actually quite a good player from Saudi Arabia. But again, because he was playing Trump, he was playing Judd's reputation and he'd never played on the TV before and he was consumed with nerves again Judd overcame those three very comfortably but when he came up against Jason Shaw well that was a a different matter entirely you know we were looking at some of the odds for that match they'd got Shaw four to nine now he should have been one to ten for me because he's played that game for years and played it at a very 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 high level he spotted the, the winning ball at the, the Moscone Cup. He's won the US Open in the past in 2017. Judd's been playing the game for a week, basically, and he's using ostensibly a borrowed cue from Carl Boys. What did he expect? What did anyone expect of Judd? Well, I think what he did was terrific. And then he lost on the one-loss side against Jason Theron from South Africa, who's currently in the mid-60s in the WPA World Rankings. So I think he acquitted himself really, really well. I think in hindsight, he might have been better off using his snooker cue to play the majority of the shots. But, you know, it was really strange. We all expected him to fall down on his break-off and his tactical, his tactical awareness. Now, the tactical awareness, I think he played a few incorrect shots, but he played some really, really good um, snookers. He hooked his opponent, as they say, in pool often. And I thought his break off was really good. Actually, the one thing that let him down, he, he missed a few basically because he wasn't quite sure about positional uh, aspects and that took off the potting aspect of the, the shot. But in general, I thought he acquitted himself well. And, and to be honest, it wasn't about the result. Was it, it was about it. The fact he was there. And let me tell you, The buzz when he was in that arena was tremendous. He was signing autographs for the players. He was a wonderful ambassador for snooker. And to get him out in America was an absolute masterstroke as far as Emily Fraser's concerned with Matrim Multisport. Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, how did the pool community sort of react to him being in it? Did they see the positives because they knew he would bring it a lot of publicity? Or was there a kind of, you know, who's who's this interloper coming to our event? 
Well, I wasn't sure what the reaction would be. I must be honest. It was totally warm. It was totally um, welcoming. They, of course, laughed at the bookmaker's assessment that he was favourites, as did I. There was no way he was going to win that. And I'm not, I'm not saying that with hindsight. I did actually say it on the first day. You know, there's just no way he was going to win. Had he done so, it would have completely um, discredited the whole sport. If someone can win your biggest event, having played the game for a week, and he's using a borrowed cue, it doesn't say a lot about pool, does it? He was never going to win it. Never. But the fact he was there promoting snooker across the Atlantic, and let's not forget, by the way, after he was in Atlantic City, he flew across that vast nation of the USA to Seattle in Washington, where he played a very successful pool and snooker exhibition up there. So his mere presence was an absolute win-win for Q Sports. You sort of touched on it earlier, but if he's going to improve in pool, what does he have to improve on? I mean, it seems odd to sort of talk about his potting because that's that you think that's his strength. But, I mean, there are tactics to pool. A lot of people think, oh, it's just easy because they sort of play it at the pub. But obviously at the top level, it's not easy, is it? So what, what are the areas where, where he would have to improve? Okay, well, I'm going to tell you the truth now. When I started commentating on pool, I thought it was easier than snooker. I really did. I thought it was, you know, big pockets. Oh, yeah, these guys, no. If snooker players came into the game, they could, you know, dominate. The point is, those guys are brilliant at what they do. Absolutely brilliant. The guy who won the US Open, Carlo Biardo, he's from the Philippines. And their tactical nous and the way they approach the game is off the charts for me. They're such lateral thinkers. What Judd has got to do, it's very, very simple. Technically, he's got nothing to do. He's a phenomenal potter. What he's got to do, he's just got to play the game a lot. It's as simple as that. When he gets the, the moves, when he gets the, the idea of what's required, when he can play jump shots with a, a certain degree of confidence, when he knows how to push out, all that kind of stuff, if he did that a lot, I'm sure he'd be competitive. You know, a lot was made beforehand about can he do this? Can he make the transition? And we were talking about Steve Davis, who got to the, the semi-final of the World Championship. We were talking about Tony Drago, former MVP at the Moscone Cup, making the transition. I think the more salient point would have been the three women's world champions who went over to America, Alison Fisher, Kelly Fisher, and Karen Kaur. What they did... They went over there, but they didn't dominate immediately. Alison, I was speaking to her at the World Championship earlier this year in June, and she was saying, basically, she went over there and just for six months hibernated away, playing with good pool players, understanding what was required. And then when she'd had that relatively brief apprenticeship, she went onto the circuit, and within a year or two, she was absolutely dominating, and she still wins tournaments now, as indeed does Kelly Fisher, who, by the way, just before the, the US Open, won the, the latest event on the WPBA Tour, which is the big women's tour over in the States. So it's all about, for Trump, just playing more. But whether he wants to, now that's an entirely different matter, because if you're playing a lot of pool, you're not playing as much snooker. Yeah, the event uh, was, of course, in New Jersey. Uh, it came across well, I thought. I, I saw quite a bit of it on Sky Sports. What was it like to be there? Well, as you know, Dave, my big pleasure in life is going to the States on vacation. Since 1991, I've gone either once or twice a year. I don't drink or smoke. I don't do anything apart from work. 
but I do go to the States to play golf and I love the place. I absolutely love the place. And to be deprived of being there for two years was very hard for me to take, actually. It was the, the hardest thing in many respects I've, I've had to deal with in terms of being deprived, being deprived of, a, of a big pleasure. So when I got in that car from the airport, from Philadelphia to Atlantic City, I was quite emotional, actually. So I bet, you personal... were, I, bet, I bet you it was a limo, wasn't it? Well, extraordinary. <laughs> I mean, I was the only one flying. I was the only one flying that day. They said, oh, yeah, there's a car picking you up. There's the car. It's a stretch limo, a black stretch limo. I mean, I felt like sort of, I don't know, a, a rock superstar when, mm. as everybody knows, I'm the complete opposite of a rock superstar. But no, it, it, incredible. The journey was beautiful as well, actually, uh, through the Pinelands Reserve. And then we hit the, the coast in Atlantic City. But the actual tournament, to be honest, when I walked into the arena on the first morning, it was at seven o'clock. I was looking for the commentary box. There wasn't one. Basically, it was a, a raised pedestal um, where the three commentators sat uh, alongside the three members of the uh, Matchroom media team uh, who did such sterling work there, uh, Jay, uh, Jake Aspie and, and Matt Lynch. And I'm thinking, well, I'm not going to be able to speak in my normal voice here. So I had a word with the, the organisers and they said, yeah, you can't whisper for six days. Just do this. Now, we were quite a way back from the the table so that wasn't a problem but of course when play began it began with 33 tables all around the arena to quite loud music so speaking w wasn't an issue i think the only time i took off anyone was when a relative unknown from california called rodrigo geronimo got through and i actually shouted geronimo <laughs> down the <laughs> microphone and i think that did take somebody off on a nearby table but apart from that it was okay but the overall experience honestly was it was just a real privilege to be there and i can honestly say this as long as i'm involved in q sports i will never ever forget that week for so many different reasons yeah i mean the, the matchroom they do of course promote some snooker but pool is one of the events that matchroom multisport uh, do we should explain matchroom obviously is one organization but it's split up into different bodies so you've got world snooker tour you've got the pdc you've got the boxing and matchroom multisport they do the pool, they do fishermania, netball, gymnastics, tempin bowling, all sorts of things. Um, and this is under their umbrella. So I'm, I'm hoping at some point to get Emily on, Emily Fraser. I've not asked her yet, but uh, to, to, to talk about the whole operation because it is an extraordinary operation. And it seems to me that, that they really now are driving pool. It's something they obviously believe in, they believe is popular, and they're looking to really kind of spread the gospel, aren't they? They are indeed. And, you know, while we were in Atlantic City, they announced a brand new tournament, which is going to be taking place at the Copper Box Arena on the Olympic Park in East London uh, next May. The UK Open, which is basically the same template as the US Open, 256 players, anyone can enter. And that's going to be a massive event. It's going to be the biggest field in British pool. And it's going to be the biggest prize money as well. We're led to believe it's going to be a $200,000 prize fund with a, a 40,000 US dollar first prize. And... I think quite a few snooker players might be tempted to play. I know Emily uh, wants some snooker players involved, and uh, that will be absolutely tremendous to see. I think I think you might see Judd turning up because, of course, I think the dates are the 17th to the 22nd of May, so it won't clash with any snooker. He certainly is not going to be involved in the Q school, Dave. <laughs> no, I, I suspect you're right about that. 
yeah, I mean, I think there was lots of snooker players I noticed on Twitter sort of, I think seeing Trump in those early matches against people who were struggling thought, oh, this is easy. But of course, we saw as the tournament went on, it's not easy. But I think quite a few of them will be tempted. And why not? I mean, what, you know, the, there are obviously transferable skills, aren't there? Well, I'll tell you one person who should be tempted, Mark Selby. I think he would be absolutely terrific. He's won the English uh, pool version of the world eight ball championship. I think he would be absolutely suited to it down to the ground because he's got such a, a keen tactical mind, hasn't he? Yeah. Another person who I was told played an awful lot of pool in his youth was Graham Dot. Now, what a competitor we know we Dotty is, so he could uh, fit in as well. Dominic Dale in the past has played in the World Nine Ball Championship when it was in Cardiff. So too, Mark Williams. I think they would be my four leading candidates right now, but let's hope there's more than four involved. Here's a question then. What, uh, and and it's, it, this is all opinion and also perspective because within different Q sports, there are different skills. For example, three cushion billiards, there are no pockets, it's all cannons. But what is the hardest Q sport? Well, I think I'm going to upset my pool friends <laughs> by saying this. I think, well, maybe Russian billiards oh, from what I'm hearing. Well, it's hard, it's, hard, it's hard to watch. I've commented on it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the pockets don't exist, do they? Mm. You know, yeah. those pockets are tighter than mine, Dave. That's how <laughs> tight they are. They're tighter than mine. But mm. um, <laughs> I think it has to be snooker, doesn't it? You know, the, the thing is with snooker, you've got on the tour 128 players all of them are competitive. All of them have made century breaks. All of them, you know, are very highly skilled. And at the top end, well, I mean, those guys. There's a slogan on the PGA Tour many years ago, these guys are good. I always said the slogan should have been on the, the snooker tour, these guys are unbelievable. And they remain so. The standard, the collective standard is off the charts. So I would have to say snooker. Having said that, though, do not underestimate the skills of the pool fraternity. They deserve all the plaudits. Yeah, I think there's more variance to snooker, isn't there? You know, there's, you can have so many different types of frames and so many different skills are required. But I've had an email, actually, from Kevin Higgins, which is related to this. He said, thanks for the podcast. I used to watch a lot of snooker when I lived in the UK, but there's less of it here in Australia. He, say, he said, I play world rules pool. Please don't hold it against me. I know snooker. You see, I know snooker is the hardest cue sport. That's what Kevin says. He says, Paul was a cop-out because I was crap at snooker. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, with Gareth Potts and Mark Selby having a go at Paul, I'm hoping it will lift the profile. Ultimate Pool Group have done a fantastic job. They developed the new international eight-ball rules, which are gaining traction. Is this a good thing for small ball pool? Well, of course, this is a, this is a different form of pool. It's eight-ball pool. And, yeah, Mark, uh, Gareth Potts, who's got the best name ever for a Q-sports uh, competitor, Gareth Potts, he's his uh, brother-in-law, I believe. Um, so they're going to be playing in this uh, Ultimate Pool event, which is on free sports in the UK. Uh, will it be a good thing? Absolutely. I mean, Mark Selby is the world snooker champion. He's a big, big name. In Leicester, they've just put a mural up, uh, which he's on, and Leicester City's you know, winning Premier League team are on. You know, that's, that's how he's regarded there. So he's a big name. And I think as with Trump going to America, Phil, you know, any, anything that raises the profile of a event can only be a good thing. Exactly right. And, you know, all credit to Gareth Potts as well, because he's a very versatile character. He's done really, really well in what they call Chinese eight ball, which is, it looks like a, a smaller snooker table with pool balls. And he's gone over there and won some big tournaments. Mark Selby nearly won a, a very big event. Um, it was only brilliance from Darren Appleton in the, the last rack that prevented 
Selby from winning a, a first prize over there of a hundred thousand US dollars, I believe it was. So yeah, look, it's all good. It's all good. It's cross fertilization, and what is good for snooker is good for pool and and vice versa. I will say this, Dave. Actually, this is just a, a slight diversion from your question, but. It was amazing to me. I was approached by several people from all over the good old USA last week who were keen to say hello and keen to say how much they enjoyed watching snooker on DAZN and various other outlets in the States. I personally believe that snooker is bigger over there than here in the UK we are led to believe. I guess the question is how does it reach, you know, levels of popularity that would sustain tournaments there? Um, Judd Trump, he was saying, because he's, he's gone to Seattle to do an exhibition. I totally agreed with what he said. He said, you know, if we're going to introduce it, it has to be kind of bite-sized almost. You can't go there with like as a best of 19 event or something. You've got to give them a taster. And even if that's six reds or if it's the shot clock thing, you know, show them, uh, you know, sort of the, the basics of the game. But it's a different culture, isn't it? It's very much sport in America is very much entertainment-based. So how snooker fits into that, a little bit like cricket, I guess, might be difficult. Yeah, I'll tell you what, though, you know, you could actually kill two birds with one stone here. When I first came on the circuit, and I think it was the same when you came on the circuit, there was an argument to say there were too many invitation events and not enough ranking events. Now, I think it's gone completely the opposite. I don't think there are quite enough invitation events, to be honest. There are some very big markets that perhaps couldn't sustain a world ranking event, but would be ideal for a really elite four-man invitation tournament. Now, I'll give you three. Poland in Eastern Europe, which has got an extraordinary interest in the game. They've had a minor ranking event, of course, the Gdynia Open. But I think if you took a four-man event out there to, say, Warsaw, that would be really successful. I met a, a person over in, um, in the US Open who was from Pakistan, and he was saying the interest over there in snooker is off the charts take a four-man event, perhaps there, and also to the USA and Canada, because I think that's the only way you're going to place the personalities in the market where you're hoping the game is going to grow. You're not going to be able to sustain a ranking event immediately, but who knows, in the years to come, that's what might happen. It's what happened in China, it's what happened in Dubai, and it will undoubtedly be the case that that's always going to be the way forward invitation event first ranking event second no i agree but the sticking point is of course world snooker their policy is to put on ranking events because they feel they have to look after all the players um matchroom under the under the terms of the the contract can only put, can only actually promote two events so they can't actually go and, and put on an event in america unless they drop one of the other ones so there's a bit of a catch-22 but i think world snooker you know listen Matrium, obviously, back in the day, did all these invitation events. I, th I know they're looking at America. Steve Dawson told me that uh, when I interviewed him. So I wouldn't be surprised if, if there wasn't maybe something at some point. Anyway, we, uh, Judge Trump's visit to Seattle may well help. But uh, speak, no. go on. One final thing, Dave, I will say this. If you think about it, by laying down the groundwork and preparing the situation for a ranking event, if you have a smaller invitation event they actually are looking after all of the players aren't they because they're giving them more opportunities potentially down the line yeah absolutely and uh, as i say i wouldn't be surprised if it didn't happen but as i say judd trump uh, before he went to america uh, caused a lot of discussion which i discussed myself last week about uh, the crucible he said he thinks the world championships have grown the crucible should go somewhere else i didn't agree with him a lot of people didn't agree with him 
But Alex Spiru does agree with him. He's written in. Now, firstly, apologies, Alex. Your email was very long, and I, I can't read it all out, but I will attempt to, to sort of summarise it as best I can. So Alex writes, to quickly get this out of the way, the person who wrote to you last week missed Judd's point. He thought Judd was complaining. You correctly pointed out that it came more from a desire to grow the game. Another, another minor point, let's not forget, this started with Neil Robertson a few weeks earlier. Yeah, you're right, Robertson was talking about shortening the event. So anyway, on to the main points. Cost of the venue. Alex said, I don't think it's a fair comparison to compare the O2 Arena to the Crucible. As you said, snooker is not conducive to arena, an arena of that size, but an arena just another 25 to 35% bigger would be appropriate and cost a lot less than somewhere like the O2. But let's assume the cost is £150,000 plus... Uh, cost plus 50,000 assumed money from local Sheffield Council. I'm not sure where you got those figures from, but anyway, we'll continue. Additional costs could be distributed through one or more of the following. A slight hike in sponsorship, some cost-cutting measures, local council support as they get with the Crucible, additional ticket sales due to increased size, slight decrease in prize money at the latter stages, very small increase in ticket sales, additional local business sponsorship, etc., etc. This may still result in a slightly less profitable event, but it expands the customer base and engagement. It costs to develop the sport. Also, if WST is very profitable, then these are not material costs overall. Next, emotional connection and commercials. I get it, but it's like when Arsenal and other sports clubs move to new venues. You make your own history and nothing is forever. I don't know, but would the BBC really have such an attachment to the Crucible? They've moved with many sports that can make a venue attractive to the watching audiences. One suggestion was when at the one table setup, they returned to the Crucible, or perhaps they could make a mild adjustment to provide just that little more space around the table. But I think the bigger problem is that you could house more people elsewhere to enable more customer interest. On shortening matches, he says that they could put on additional matches to fill the same airtime, e.g. exhibition matches, celebrity matches, perhaps played against pros who may be knocked out or not due to play for a few days or past masters. Basically, it's an opportunity to test out possible new interesting formats. These extra events could even be a draw for those early round days or matches where ticket sales are typically lower. Surely it's not an impossible formula to construct compelling TV with what Snooker has in the toolbox. History of the venue. If we're truly tied to the Crucible, then what happens if Sheffield get a better offer? I know it's unlikely, but you have but to have such a dependency is a corporate risk. Also, the history you talk of, Higgins, Davis, O'Sullivan, etc., is less relevant to younger fans, and that has to be a large part of the future of the sport. Also, as every year passes, those older fans will move on, uh, if not just because of the cruel ravages of time. I'm not suggesting change for change's sake, but there's no doubt snooker's appeal is reducing as a sport on the world stage. No company can wait and delegate strategic responsibility and dependence on external forces. Those valuable TV deals will start to shrink if they haven't already as other sports grow and take a slice of the pie. Snooker, like all sports, is competing against other sports for that pie. There is more, Alec, but I think we get the gist there. Uh, I still don't agree. Um, I made the points last week and people can go back to listen to the commercial reason to stay at the Crucible. The main one is, you know, they get it for nothing and they get support from uh, Sheffield City Council. And, and if you've never been, the whole city becomes a snooker city. And you get off the train, you know, you, you know the World Championship's on, which you, you certainly wouldn't get in a, in a big London venue. Um, in terms of your arguments for, for shortening, putting on exhibition matches, I think is a complete non-starter. The BBC are not going to be interested in showing those. They want to show the World Championship. You know, they want to show proper competitive snooker. Um, and they do that over 17 days, and they have done for the last 40 years. I'm, I, don't, I, don't, I seriously don't understand why anyone who calls himself a snooker fan wants less of the World Championship. I just do not get that at all. Um, but listen, absolutely entitled to, to your views. Phil, you've been going to the cruise for a long, long time, longer than, longer than me, longer than most people. What, what's your opinion on this? Well, look, the greatest moments 
in snooker happen at the Crucible. They always have, and let's hope they always do. All of this talk about moving from the Crucible and about reducing the number of frames is rubbish. <laughs> Utter rubbish. It's the best thing we have. If you've got something that isn't broken, don't change it. It's not broken. It sells out. People love it. You need history for credibility. That's as simple as that. Look, I'll give you an, an example. Next year, the RNA, the Royal and Ancient Golf Club, are putting on the 150th Open Championship. The Open began in 1860. 1860, right? Where are they going to play it? They're going to play it around the old course at St. Andrews. Now, some people would say that's not really now a good test for top-level players. If it's calm, the scoring will be ridiculously low for a major. But when you're standing watching a hole there, the ninth maybe, around the turn, in the, in the gorse bushes, in all that history, it's phenomenal. When you're sitting in the stand on the 17th, the road hole, the vibes unparalleled. And it's the same at the Crucible. It's the same at Wimbledon. Look, Wimbledon is not the biggest tennis arena. It's not as big as the US Open. I don't know about Roland Garros or the Australian. But, you know, okay, it's not about size. It's about history. It's about what it means to people. And having a frame of reference, this is where Dennis Taylor potted the black. This is where Stephen Hendry won his seventh world title. This is where Jimmy White made that wonderful 147. That's what it's about. It's not about sponsorship or money or about trying to get more people in. It's about history and having something to say, this is what we're proud of. With regard to Neil Robertson's comments about the, the tournament, about reducing the number of frames, it shouldn't be reduced. I would have one slight caveat about that actually i think the semi-finals i don't mind the actual number of frames played i just dislike the fact that it's over those three days i think that the first day of the semi-finals is a, a you know a, a damn squib there's no doubt about that for me because you've got one session of each semi-final and it's sort of oh yeah well it doesn't really mean a lot especially when they sort of finish four each or whatever but that's a, a very minor point the Crucible should be kept at all costs. And I think as long as Barry Hearn has anything to say about it, as long as Steve Dawson has got anything to say about it, it will be. But by the way, I think Alex made a, you know, a very cogent argument in his email, and it was really good that he took the time to, to send that. But I totally disagree with what he's saying. If you took it to another venue, that's precisely what it would be, just another venue. The Crucible is different. When you walk through those doors, it really does send a, a chill down the spine because it is one on its own. Yeah, and, and I agree with all that. But despite all that, as I, as I said last week, it's actually a very good commercial deal. And I think this is why players have got to be slightly careful um, because they're sort of creating this impression to the wider public, people who maybe don't follow snooker that closely, wouldn't listen to this podcast, for example, that snooker's in some sort of trouble. Oh, we've got to go somewhere else. We've got to cut the frames. Snooker's not in trouble. I mean, Alec there kind of, suggested it's on the wane. This is a fact, okay? There are more players than ever affiliated to national governing bodies around the world. There are more viewers than ever because there are more platforms to watch on. You mentioned the people you spoke to in America. You know, it's not that long ago they wouldn't be able to see a ball of it. 
Um, it's on streaming services. You can watch it pretty much anywhere, anywhere in the world, and people do. The World Championship now, we talk about the 18.5 million, 85. That was just in Britain. Around the world now, hundreds of millions of people watch snooker and certainly the World Championship. So there isn't actually a crisis. And you look at the money that the likes of Judd and Neil are earning. What's the problem? <laughs> what, what have they got to complain about? Exactly. When I started the, my previous answer, if it's not broken, why fix it? Mm. Look, we're living in, a, in an age, and bear in mind, COVID was an incredibly, and remains an incredibly big hurdle for snooker to, to clear. And yet we're living in an age that it is, well, I don't think the game has ever been more prosperous on an international level. Okay, I think in the UK, undoubtedly, figures in the 80s were, well, ridiculous, weren't they? But internationally, it's fantastic. And you don't kill the goose that lays the golden eggs. No, I mean, I've said before, I think in the UK, I know this is a bit British-centric, but that's because we live here. Um, in the UK, in terms of free-to-air television, there are more days of snooker than any other sport. If you add up the BBC, uh, ITV4, Quest, who show the home nations, free sports, who show the Championship League, it's over 100 days just on free-to-air television. No other sport has that. You know, it's, it's incredible. And that is the, the vote of confidence that the, the broadcasters have in snooker. And the BBC, if the BBC want to show 17 days, let them show 17 days. Why, do we want, why, why would it be better for them to show 12 days? I don't get that at all. Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you one little anecdote about the Crucible as well, which I think is pertinent. Uh, a few years back, oh, I can't remember now, they all melt into one, but a good friend of mine, uh, Jim Weich, uh, emailed me from Canada and said he's got a couple of friends coming over. Would it be okay to show them around backstage? And I said, yeah, of course, no problem. So um, we, we met up and I met them at the stage door. I'd arrange for them to just come in with me to have a look around backstage. And I just took them into the interview room, the press room, all that kind of stuff. And you would have thought they would have had a tour of Buckingham Palace. I mean, they were overwhelmed by this. They couldn't believe they were seeing basically behind the scenes at the Crucible. Now, this is people from Canada. I think one of them was from the West Coast. Not important, but this is people from an entirely different continent across the Atlantic who were enraptured by the fact they were there. It means something. The Crucible means something. Look, when we talk about a winner, oh, he's won at the Crucible. You don't say, oh, yeah, you know, so-and-so who's won at Bournemouth International Centre or at Telford International Centre or at the Barbican. You say, when you've won at the Crucible, people know what you've won. Well, Tony Finnegan emailed in that he mentioned, he brought up the subject of the BDO World Darts, which, of course, for many years was held at the Lakeside, Premier Green, and that was their kind of their mecca, if you like, and then it moved actually to the O2 and, and it became a bit of a shambles. Um, they're going to go back there. Of course, the difference in darts is there's another world championship, the PDC one, which has completely outgrown the lakeside. But it was an interesting point he made. But he also, made, and this is completely unrelated, but I thought this was quite interesting, actually. He said, uh, one more little issue, please. It might seem a strange question, but which ends are the top and bottom of the snooker table, respectively? I only ask because I, I would always refer to the top of the table as being at the bulk end, probably because that how it appears on TV. However, I know some commentators and players and players refer to the top of the table being where the Reds are. This has resulted in numerous friendly disputes down my local club. So, Dave, can you officially confirm which end is the top of the snooker table? Well, Tony, I don't think I can officially confirm anything because I don't, I don't have the authority, but we always call the, the, the top cushion is the black cushion. 
Um, and I guess I always assumed it was because when you break off, you're looking towards the top of the table. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's how I commentate. <laughs> and I follow the example of uh, Clive Everton in that. Basically, the top cushion is the black cushion and the bottom cushion is the ball cushion. Uh, I know <laughs> and I can understand the confusion because it should be the other way around. It definitely should be, but it isn't. You see, the thing is, the top of the table is from the player's perspective when they break off. And the bottom of the table is obviously the opposite end. So, yeah, the top cushion is the black cushion and the bottom cushion is the ball cushion. <laughs> it's, that, it's like that old, you know, for those of you watching it, black and white, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, uh, Paul Prescott, this is going back to the pool. He said, whilst watching the recent nine ball US Open featuring Chud Trump, I suddenly thought about something I'd like to see in the snooker shootout. That is a spotted white ball. Obviously, the shootout is the closest thing Snooker has to the format of nine ball. And being able to see the spin on the white is something I find fascinating. I don't think it will be appropriate for other tournaments, but I think it will give viewers a better appreciation of the skill involved and how often the players use side and screw and how it affects the path of the cue ball. Well, Paul, I mean, Sean Murphy's a big advocate of that, in, I think, in all tournaments um, he, he, for the same reason. Um, I wouldn't be against that in the shootout. I mean, I don't think, it, I don't think it would, it would, the sky wouldn't come crashing down, I don't think. I would be totally against it in any other tournament, mm. barring the shootout, because I think it would take players an awful long time to get used to it. But I think in the shootout, why not? Every other innovation has been used, it seems. So, yeah, fair game. Absolutely get it in the shootout. Morgan Nock has two questions. Firstly, how much notice do the top-up players get before a tournament? Michael Giorgio must know he's playing every time, but the 10th or 15th player on the list is presumably waiting to see who enters withdraws. What if they need time off work or time to make travel arrangements? Well, this is pertinent, actually, because on uh, just recently, the English Open, uh, two of the Chinese players, Zhou Yulong and Zhang Jiankang, had to withdraw because they'd been in close contact with someone who had COVID. Now, on Saturday, um, or it might have been Friday, anyway, the day before the match, uh, the, the replacement for Zhang still wasn't known. Uh, presumably, they were doing exactly that. They were ringing around people. Um, forget who it was now. Um, but it's the, the answer, therefore, is the very last minute. And as you say, if you, if you do work full-time or, you know, you may be other end of the country, it's not always necessarily easy to, to get in and play. But I think the, the moral of the story is keep your phone on. Because um, Ross Muir replaced Joe Long, and he actually won his match. Um, so he's qualified for Milton Keynes. So that, that answers that. Second one. Now, this this, I think... It's a really interesting question because I've never heard it asked before, um, but we will answer it. He said, on TV broadcast, do they have a player as a pundit and a separate person, I presume an ex-pro, spotting from the director to get the right camera angles for shots? Or is the co-commentator doing two jobs? Well, of course, on darts, they have exactly that. I think Keith Deller does a lot of it at the sky, doesn't he? He sits in the truck and he's guiding the director for the checkout. The answer is they don't have one. Um, and the main reason is this. The, the guys that cover snooker, particularly the camera operators, they do all the tournaments. They know the game inside out. They know where to stand. They know what shots to offer. Sometimes on commentary, you know, you might you might say, oh, I wonder if that red goes past the black and then they'll move into position. They're normally there already because they know, they, they anticipate that. You can, as a commentator, cue the director and ask them, ask for a particular shot. But by and large, Phil, and we know the guys, you know, they, they know the game, don't they? And that, that applies to a lot of the directors as well. Yeah. The vast majority of snooker directors are extremely good. The overwhelming majority of the camera operators in fact i would say every single one of them is just wonderful at what they do 
And so consequently, the need for a spotter, you know, there might be the odd shot. And I'll tell you what it occurs sometimes where you see someone playing up towards a, a ball pocket and it looks as though they're going to try and potter a red to a distant green or yellow bag when in fact they're cutting it into a middle pocket. Sometimes that causes a little bit of confusion, but, you know, the amount of times that crops up, it doesn't warrant having a special person in the truck with the director telling them what shot is going to be played. Um, we're very lucky in snooker because all of the people who work on it, i.e. directors and cameramen, do it full time pretty much. And so consequently, as you say, their knowledge of the rhythm and the way the game works is right up there. Yeah, I mean, just to explain how it works. So obviously the cameramen and women are on the floor of the, of the arena and they will offer up shots. So they will, the director can see every camera, um, what every camera is transmitting. And it's up to them in the truck to cut between them to decide which shot to go for. So obviously a lot of the time you see that, that overhead shot, but they can cut to the floor cameras. They, they've got the jib that sort of glides around. It seems to have more cameras than ever. They've got cameras in the pockets. And it's, I don't know, I mean, it's an extraordinary job. It, it takes a certain person to do it. Of course, earlier this year, we lost Steve Doherty, who's one of the best ever at it. Um, he sadly passed away. Um, but it, it, it would, I mean, I don't know, you have to be a certain person to be able to concentrate um, and to be able to do it. And, and you know, a lot of these guys, of course, they work across loads of sports. It, it, it's, it's an art in itself, isn't it? Absolutely. And of course, they love it when they're directing and there's a 147, <laughs> stuff like that they sort of seem to think it's it's their own achievement. But yeah, I mean, look, we've worked with all kinds of directors over the years, Dave. And I can honestly say, I've never ever worked with someone who I think, oh, well, they can't do the job. They're all uh, extremely good. Some are better than others. Obviously that happens, um, you know, in, in every walk of life. But certainly in terms of um, the the home nations events for for Eurosport on the BBC, the, the three big tournaments, the UK Championship, the, the Masters and the World Championship. And specifically from, from our perspective, the ITV events, we couldn't wish for anything better. We must mention the, the director at ITV, Lewis Hurt, who's brilliant. I mean, he does every sport and he's one of their top men, but his ambition at Snooker is to direct a maximum. There's only been three on ITV since it came back on to ITV4. Uh, Mark Selby, the champion champion, he didn't do that one. Uh, John Higgins, day one of the British Open, he didn't do that one. But the Ali Carter one, he was supposed to be directing that, that session and he actually sw swapped shifts because he had to get a COVID test because he was going away to Canada. So he actually, and he, <laughs> I know you were commentating, but I was sat in the production office as he was watching Ali pop the balls and he sort of sunk into his chair as, as another one slips by. I think it will happen eventually for Lewis. I think it will happen. Well, let's hope so because, you know, in 30 years of commentating, he is right up there with one of the nicest guys we've ever worked with and also one of the most enthusiastic. He's an absolutely smashing fellow. And when he has his first 147, I'll be the first to, to tap him on the back. It will mean more to him than the player, I, I promise you. Anyway, we'll end with Matt Tarrant because this brings us back to the Bridge Open, actually, because Matt went along uh, to Leicester. He said, I love the tournament, both on TV and live for the final. And he's got pros and cons. So the pros, he said, 128 players in the tournament, an open draw. Uh, Mark Allen v. Ryan Evans, Stephen Hendry winning his first match. The whole, and then he says Hendry embarrassment. That was that was Gary Wilson. I will actually slightly defend Gary. He he wasn't saying Hendry was an embarrassment. He said the whole match was. So he's including himself in that. It's important to say that because I know Gary got a lot of stick for that. Uh, anyway, to continue, Matt says uh, the Geordie local uh, Geordie local derby semi final. 
a good final, great champion, great price to attend, and fantastic value entertainment. So they're the pros, the cons, the venue. Morningside Arena in Leicester, he said, it's okay inside, but bar in a tent, challenging in a pandemic, uh, location not good, scruffy backstreet industrial estate. Chatted to Jason Ferguson afterwards, and he explained the problems with venues as evidenced by the Scottish Open move to Wales. I congratulated him on the tournament and all the work to get it on because I loved it. So overall, thankfully, Matt enjoyed his experience. Yeah, I mean, I think the venue is possibly a little small for an event of that size with so many players because there's not, like you said, there's not a lot of sort of uh, hospitality space. You can't, you know, they had to put a tent up, as you say, but there wasn't a lot of stuff around it. They can't help the literal geographical location. Got to be said, they're a hell of a friendly lot at the, at the morning side. Big Dave, who runs it, couldn't do enough for you. Um, but he enjoyed it, Phil. And I know you did as well. We were there. We did a preview, of course, before it. It went off well, didn't it? I thought it was a fantastic tournament. Yeah. You know, we were in Leicester for five consecutive weeks, weren't we, Dave? We were doing the Championship League there. And then the British Open. At one point, I thought I might have to uh, change my, uh, my, <laughs> my, my forms over and pay my community charge in Leicester rather than at home. We were there that often. But, yeah, I mean, look, I do agree with Matt's assessment, basically. I think the, the outside of the venue and the surrounds aren't the best, but the actual inside and the way it all works and the support that the tournament got was fantastic. And you're right about Big Dave. He, he's the greatest host imaginable uh, to the venue. One thing I would say about the British Open, if it is on next season, and, you know, please God, it will be, if they moved it, I think, a little later into the season where players were into stroke, as it were, I think it would be a better standard. And I think the number of shocks would be somewhat reduced. You can never say they're going to be completely eliminated because of the best of five frame format. So maybe if they took it into, you know, middle, late September, that might be a better slot for it. But in general, I thought the event was a real success. And just finally, Phil, while you're on, of course, the season has started and it sort of feels like it's sort of stopped again. I know there's qualifying, but next tournament's not for a couple of weeks. But uh, we've already had a new winner, of course, Dave Gilbert, although, you know, that he wasn't a, a massive surprise winner at all. And Mark Williams, very much uh, an established winner, British Open. It, this, the season to come, your prediction, is it going to be the sort of same old faces winning? Do you think we'll see a few new winners? I mean, it's hard to say, but what do you think? I personally think the establishment will be remaining intact. Um, you can't say he's a new name because he's already won the Masters, but I think Yan Bing Tao is going to have a very big season. He's very tough to beat. And I know for certain he's right at the top of the league when it comes to dedication. So I think he will have a big say in the season. But, you know, you look at the the excellence of people like Judd Trump and Neil Robertson. You look at the class of 92. Like Mark Williams said, you know, we're not going away. We're like a, a bad smell. We're not going away. They're still around. So I think, yeah, and there's plenty of other top players as well. Let's hope the likes of Mark Allen come back into the winner's circle because when he plays well, he's just sensational. So, yeah, I think the establishment now is going to remain as the the predominant supplier of winners. But you always get the odd upset, and let's hope we do. I'll be interested to see how it goes in Belfast because... Of course, the top players haven't played. <laughs> they haven't played for weeks and weeks. They've been qualifying for the some of the lower ranked players, um, but the top players they haven't played. I think there is a German Masters qualifier actually, so they will have had a, a couple of matches beforehand. But anyway, that's all to come. Uh, in the meantime, 
We're proud members of the Sports Social Network. Check out the other podcasts. You can email us, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. That's snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Phil, thank you for your company and thank you for answering all our questions. I thought you said you were a bit on the fence there about the Crucible. I thought you could have offered a more definitive opinion. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> Look, look, that's the, that's the point. It's everyone's opinion, isn't it? And everyone is entitled to opinions. Having been there, my first Crucible was 1978, actually. Um, and I, well, when I walked in, I was 15 years of age. When I walked in, I thought, God, this is just extraordinary. And my opinion hasn't changed about that. One other player I have to say, by the way, uh, who I think will do really well next season now that his confidence has been reboosted by winning at the Crucible in the spring, Mark Selby. He's going to have a good season. You would think so. Well, we will follow it all, of course, but uh, that is it for now. We'll see you next week. Sports Social Podcast Network.